This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Welcome again to the Church Society podcast. I'm Lee Gatiss, the Director of Church Society, and I'm joined today by Regional Director for the South West, uh, Chris Moore, who's also a vicar in Hereford. Hi, Chris. Good morning, Lee. Good morning. And uh, we thought we would do Heresy Half Hour we're going to look at, uh, in this uh, heresy half hour at heresies regarding the doctrine of revelation. What is revelation, Chris? Uh, we're not talking about the book in the Bible, revelation, are we? We're talking about the doctrine of revelation. What's that all about? We are. I think the doctrine of revelation, in in, in a sense, is is grounded in the understanding that, that God is other and beyond my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, that we have mm-hmm. a God who is infinite, um, a God who therefore can't fully be comprehended by a finite being, uh, you, me, anybody. We can't fully comprehend God. God is before all things, above all things, and, and all the rest of it. So in other mm-hmm. words, we have to have some mechanism by how, by means of which we can understand God at all. God has to reveal himself to us because we can work out so much about God, but in the end, we have to be humble before God and therefore God has to reveal himself. So I think the doctrine of revelation is, is simply that. How does God reveal himself to us so that we can have any understanding of him whatsoever? This is this is an unusual thing, isn't it, for religions because um, the old... Aristotle idea uh, from long, long time ago is that God is a sort of inactive thing and we can maybe discover him. He's out there, the undiscovered thing, and um, we can use our reason or experiments or something to find him and work something out with our reason. But Christianity is saying something different. It's about being a revealed religion um, and God is an active force. He's a dynamic um personal being who actually reveals he's is a sort of act of self-disclosure involved here which is unusual or maybe unique in uh in, in world religions i think there's something in that and I, well there's a lot in that and i think as well that that sense that it requires a humility on our part as well to to see ourselves as you know that old creature creator distinction but to see ourselves as in need of that revelation that mm. it, it stops i suppose what i'm trying to say is it stops us from that most ancient of all heresies probably probably underlining all of the other ones which is mm. trying to recreate god in our own image if we uh. understand that revelation is a top-down thing not a bottom-up thing then um we, we're guarded against that i, I was struck gehardus voss um mm. I think in, oh, they're over there, some reform dogmatics, I think they're called a five-volume thing. Uh, but he's got a nice phrase about this. In what sense do reformed theologians maintain that God cannot be known? Uh, a, insofar as we can have only an incomplete understanding of an infinite being. I think it's an interesting point. And then mm-hmm. B, insofar as we cannot give a definition of God, but only a description. So we have that idea that through the revelation, God is described. We can describe what God is like, but we'll never quite get to the core of his being because he's other to us in, in that way. But nonetheless, we can 
know God. Because the other problem which we see that some have gone, and particularly around the Enlightenment, is this understanding that we can't know anything of God at all and therefore we just leave all that behind and we just focus upon uh, our human life and, and the human <laughs> realm as well. So mm. Revelation also insists that we can know something about God, but it's just that we'll never know him all the way down to the root. No, he communicates real but not exhaustive knowledge of himself. So what we can know about him from his revelation, his active self-disclosure, is real knowledge. But it, it might be couched in all sorts of ways, in accommodating itself to um, the, the speech patterns and the thought idioms of the time. Um, it's accommodated, it's sort of lisping uh, in baby language to us humans, um, something of the divine, um, which is almost inexpressible and... Um, we can't possibly comprehend it all, but it is something, it's true, and it's real knowledge, even if it's not exhaustive knowledge. Where, where do we get this, Chris? I know that there are some hymns, aren't there, that talk about this. There's uh, there's that lovely one, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, that's, um, that says uh, that he drops his still dews of quietness um, and we hear that still, small voice of calm. And so hmm. do we hear do we hear God and get his self-revelation by listening for that still small voice of calm within ourselves where is it coming from this revelation I think there is there's something obviously in the fact that we are we are in the image of God means that we have an ability to understand God there's a, there's enough of a a likeness we made in the image and likeness of God that we can reflect so we can learn things I suppose from self-reflection to some extent. We can learn things from looking at the fingerprints of God within creation itself and the created order reveals something about God. But I think in the end, the we have the, the, the scriptures as the um, safeguards, guidelines, is a different kind of revelation to the others. Um, we have God would would speak to us through those. Um, and so I think although we can say, yes, there's a still small voice of calm within us to, to which we listen, we also have to be careful that we don't just listen again to our own prejudices, our own sort of thoughts and our own yes. uh, philosophies. This, um, I'm very struck that when you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, the phraseology that is used is, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Isaiah, whomever. Yes. And then it is given. So there is that kind of active revealing of the word of the Lord coming to these various places. And and so there is that revelation which is external to us. Uh, we're not simply inward-looking beings. Our antennae are sort of uh, tuned in via scripture to, to God in through those means. That was a yeah. rubbish metaphor, but you know what I mean. I love it. Well, I mean, the Psalms talk about this, don't they? Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So there's something in the heavens uh, in the created order that tells us something about God. Romans 1 talks about this a little bit as well. It talks about um, un unrighteousness of people who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. But that just makes us without excuse, because although we knew God, we didn't honour him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. So that's kind of saying that, that there's no spot in the universe in which you 
you can't discern at least some sparks of God's glory. But yeah. but we've suppressed the truth, and so it's not enough. Um, it's there. It renders us without excuse for all that we do and our ignorance, but it's not enough to save us. So, so that sort of revelation in nature is not enough. So what do we need? Well, I think the... Uh, uh, we have that revelation. We need something to help us to understand it. And this, I would suggest, this is where and Scripture comes in, that it is the revelation of God to us. So we have a general revelation, which is there through nature. Uh, we have a special revelation, which is God revealing the things of himself which we cannot deduce, the things, of, and also a trustworthy. There's, there's a phrase somebody used somewhere, God interprets his own actions, but there is that sense that the scripture mm. gives us the key to understand these things, Calvin's line about them being the spectacles that we put on to help us properly understand that general revelation that is out there. And I think it's it's just interesting that this whole use of words is a, particular pattern by which God seems to act. Creation is brought about by words. God speaks and something happens. And (laughs) within the Jewish understanding around the time of Christ was this idea that the words of God, the word of God, in the Targums, is the mechanism by which God communicates to us. And then we see that operating in the Old Testament prophets, the word of the Lord came to, the word of the Lord came to, the word of the Lord came to. And even with Abraham, the word of the Lord appeared to Abraham, took him by the hand and showed him the stars, which is a very physical sort of thing. And so when we find, we get to John's gospel, we find the word of the Lord appearing there and taking flesh. We have that revealing word, which is witnessed through the prophets, which is witnessed in the Old Testament, becoming enfleshed and moving among us. And so all this revelation is done by means of language, by means of speech. Yes, it's accommodated language. Yes, God is uh, lisping to us, use that other phrase of Calvin's, but nonetheless, it is a a word-based revelation through scripture and then embodied and um, reified. There's a word I didn't think I'd use this morning. It's made into a a thing. (laughs) um, Hilary of Poitiers, who's an early church, Uh, theologian, has a great line on this. He says, since we're to discourse of the things of God, let us assume that God has full knowledge of himself and bow with humble reverence to his words. For he whom we can only know through his own utterances is the fitting witness concerning himself. So we, we don't know God exhaustively, but let's assume that God himself does know himself. And so if he's revealed himself and given us his word, then let, let's just you know, bow to that. Let's understand that. Let's look at that. Um, he is the witness concerning himself. Um, let him self-identify, to use that modern phrase. Let's see how God would like to identify himself and describe himself. So let's bow to that. But I'm, I'm interested in something you just said, because you were talking about the word taking us by the hand. Uh, and that, of course, makes us think of Jesus as the Word. Uh, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was mm. with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus is that Word of God. And I've heard um, some theologians, uh, some bishops say, the Bible's not the Word of God. That's not what Christians think. Jesus is the Word of God. It's Jesus we look to, not the Bible. We don't believe in Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. We believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Um, so you shouldn't go on about the Bible all the time as the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Is that a heresy? Well, I've always thought it sounds rather pious and good and personal and lovely and spiritual, but um, isn't it the exact opposite of what Jesus himself did? I mean, Jesus, I think, uh, spoke of the Bible um, and God's word as the word of God. Jesus says, you know, uh, don't make void the word of God by your tradition, for example. Um, don't So don't use your clever, pious-sounding sound bites to nullify the word of God, making out that the Bible's not the word of God, only Jesus is the word of God. There's a, there's a distinction we can draw, the word of God in Scripture and the word of God incarnate. And those are two distinguishable things. I think there's a false dichotomy here, isn't there? That yeah. why why does it have to be an either or? Um, if if we take seriously the John's prologue, it seems to me is is very much drawing on beginning of Genesis, because God creates by means of word. In the beginning was the word. Well, we can see that because of the words God spoke and God's words achieved things. God spoke and creation came into being, and so. And we have all these other instances in the Old Testament, as I've already waxed lyrical about the word coming to the um, the prophets and the rest of that. So if we understand that word, uh, then taking flesh and being Christ, why can't that word be witnessed to within the person of Christ, but also be witnessed to in the activity prior to the Old Testament? We don't want to say that the second person of the Trinity sprang into being at the incarnation. We want to say the second person of the <laughs> Trinity is as eternal as the first person of the Trinity. Of course. And, uh, and the third come to that. And also, if we understand that it was, as Peter would put it, it was through these that the prophets were carried along by the Spirit as they spoke, well, the Spirit is a member of the Trinity. The Trinity is fully God. And therefore, the words which he creates are witnesses to who he is. So I, I don't see why it has to be an either or. I would want to say that, um, I'm going to use all sorts of phrases, which I'm going to regret, but I would want to say that, <laughs> that, that Jesus is the God who appears to us, but also Jesus is the God who is revealed to us. And yeah, I think I think to try and draw them apart, and it certainly is true that Jesus had an extraordinarily high view of the scriptures, and um, and Paul would say that all, all that the scriptures are God breathed, that they are close to God as His breath. We're using human language again. That Jesus is the Word of God. This is the breath of God taking oral form, so we can understand. So I think we'd want to put them all together and to try oh. and separate. Um, kind of the word of the Lord in the Old Testament terms uh, from the word incarnate in the New Testament and it seems to be a false move to me. Uh, we yeah. seem to be doing violence to, to to the Trinity in that sense. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. And people have been doing that for centuries. I mean, John Owen in the 17th century um, published a great book. It's in Latin, so hardly anyone's read it these days, but it's a great book against the fanatics um, who say that uh, only Jesus is the word of God. The Bible is not the word of God. I, I was thinking of 2 Peter at the end of chapter 1 in uh, Peter's second letter. He says, no prophecy was ever produced mm -hmm. by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And of course, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God breathed. So scripture is, yes, it's entirely the words of men, of, of people writing, speaking, but it is it's the word of God. 
in, in another sense, in a very special sense. It's him revealing himself, disclosing his ways, his thoughts to us in words that we feeble, fallible human beings can understand. But I've heard some people say, well, scriptures, Scripture may be the word of God, but really it contains the word of God. We wouldn't say it is the word of God. We say it contains the word of God. That is, that um, those people who wrote these things down um, and had an experience of the divine, they wrote down what they thought and expressed it somehow. Um, And we're not bound by their words, but um, they are somehow testifying in a vague way to their experience of Jesus and the divine. Um, And so today, that divine, whatever that is, Jesus, God, the Spirit, um, can express himself in different ways. We're not bound by the actual words of Scripture. Um, So Scripture sort of contains words from God, but it it isn't the word of God to us today in that way. I mean, what do we say to that? Well, a number of things. I think there's... um... This is where I, I'm working on a new computer and what I thought I had nicely saved in the file structure isn't there, so I can't put it up to pull to. So I'm going to go from memory. And so forgive me if I get this wrong in places. But first of all, you, you see Jesus quoting from Scripture a lot, as the Scriptures say. Yes. And so you've got Jesus himself would clearly be happy to quote Scriptures and then say, and he would also say, as God says, and then quote the Scripture. So mm. he himself is happy to work at that verbal word level Mm. um you've also got the instance where paul and this is where i've got the notes i was looking for but paul would make a great deal about the fact that something is plural or whether it's singular within the old testament as well in galatians whether it's seed or seeds exactly uh, of abraham yes so so paul is happy to say that the scripture is inspired down to whether it's singular or plural i mean that's a very narrow if you like word well, um, Jesus does the same, doesn't he? When he's talking about Psalm uh, 110, he assumes that Psalm 110 is by David. David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right mm. hand. Now, what he's doing there is relying on a single letter in the Hebrew, um, in, mm. the, in the heading of Psalm, it says, of David. Yeah. And Jesus relies on that little bit where it says, of David, um, in his interpretation of that Psalm. So he he thinks it's infallibly, unerringly, the word of God, even down to the smallest letter. And I think the jot and the tittle of the law. And I mm-hmm. think there is also something we, we have to take all of this idea of revelation back to the one who reveals, back to God, and see revelation in the terms of his attributes as to who he is. Is God loving? Well, yes, we would want to say that God is love and therefore would it be loving for him to give us a word which confuses us and confounds us? Is God true? Well, yes, we would want to say God is true. So why would it be that then God gives us a revelation which may or may not be true in parts? Is God trustworthy? Well, yes, God is trustworthy. So why would he then give us a trust untrustworthy revelation? And the problem, of course, and also comes down is if the Bible contains the word of God, who decides? Who decides mm. then what is and what isn't the word of God? Yeah, which, what, bit, which bit do we like, I suppose, it comes down yeah. to? And um, we're going back to making ourselves God. By what? No, by the decisions we make, we then take authority over the scriptures and the authority of the scripture actually then ends up residing in us, not sat outside of ourselves. Yeah. 
So I, yeah. I don't have a. I think it's. I think it's a, a dangerous line to go down because in the end, anything then can be challenged, and you then end up with with nothing. You know, if you start cutting the bits of the Bible that you don't like out of your Bibles, don't be surprised that your Bible is full of holes. That's right. You know, I think uh, that's people often pick out a verse they like or something, and they say, "Well, God is love," and that's all I know. That's I know that God is love, um, and I just want to say, "Well, how do you know?" <laughs> How do you know God is love? If you're downplaying the Bible in this way, how do you know God is love? How do you mm. know that he's not wrath? Because it does say in elsewhere in the Bible that God is angry. How do you know I, that that's not his nature? Why are you picking one bit against the other? I think we should look at the whole scripture as the words mm. of God. Um, and every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him, as the Proverbs say. Um, and we don't interpret one part as if it's repugnant or contradictory to another because God himself is consistent and coherent God. And this is how Jesus did it. So as a Christian, I follow Christ. I'm not making this up. This is not some modern enlightenment evangelical um, doctrine. This is just following what Jesus did. Let's look at how Jesus um, used the Bible and spoke of the Bible and let's speak of the Bible and use the Bible in the ways he did, which is, we call it the word of God. We treat it as the word of God. It's from God. And we treat it as our authority in all these matters of morality and doctrine and understanding who God is. So that's what Jesus did. I'm following Jesus. I'm going to do that, even if some other people think that that is, I don't know, enlightenment rationalism or Scottish common sense realism or something. Well, I, th I think there's, yeah, and that is the point, isn't it? That we're seeking to understand that, uh, we're seeking to understand through scripture a God who's beyond our understanding. And so there will be things in there that we we think, well, how do they fit together? How does that mm. work? <laughs> but in the end, we have to hold these things together in order to, to get, to the truth because because god is god is there and you know the old the new testament writers pay very close attention to the old testament uh they search the scriptures and you know beginning with moses and all the prophets jesus interpreted to them or in all the scriptures the things concerning himself so that's really the, the only model that we can use to try and to get to any understanding of god we use those means because that's all that he's given us at another point we ought to do a heresy half hour on uh, the ancient heresy of Marcionism, which is that whole downplaying well, of the Old are. Testament, as if it's not the Word of God. We just need the New Testament and uh, that ancient heretic Marcion who said something like that. Uh, so let's do another heresy half hour at another point on that. So we, we discuss whether Scripture is the Word of God, whether Scripture contains the Word of God. What about this other one that some people sometimes say, Scripture isn't in itself the Word of God, but... By the Spirit, as we hear um, or talk to each other or listen to a, a song or see a great sunset um, or whatever, as we read it, as we have an experience of um, exposition or reading scripture, it can become the word of God to us. Um, what do you think of that? I think in a way that's uh, it's sort of conflating general revelation, this idea that, that God is known through nature with the, the special revelation of, of the scriptures. So, yes, we can be moved by a beautiful sunset. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to be moved by a beautiful sunset. You could be, um, you know, I, I would have thought there'll be many atheists who are equally moved by a beautiful sunset. But that's 
that is a general revelation. That is part of us creating the image of God resonating when we see the beauty of God in his creation. But I think I think it's helpful to have an objectiveness about this. And I think the scriptures mm-hmm. are that objective um, revelation of God by which we know him. They, 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 they're there to challenge us. Um, and our emotions are as fallen as every other part of us is fallen. And we should be wary of trusting in them too much. The scriptures should interpret our experience, not our experience interpreting the scriptures mm. in that way I mean, around. When you're talking about interpretation, it is okay for us to use all the means established by God for interpreting the scripture. Scripture is clear, but that doesn't mean that just me on my own reading scripture, it will all suddenly become clear. God has no. also given us the means for making it clear. Um, I love that bit in uh, uh, Psalm 32, where... Um, where he says, uh, "I will, I will lead you and guide you in the way that you should go." You know, uh, Psalm thirty-two, verse eight: "I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go." And people are, "Oh, lovely! God's going to guide me. Um, I will counsel you with my eye upon you." Wonderful! God is going to give me guidance. But the very next verse says, "But don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which have got to be curbed with bit and bridle, or their way not will not stay near you." So he's saying, you know, use your brain. <laughs> I will guide you and teach you, but you've got to use your brain. Don't just expect it to, um, you know, suddenly happen or that you need to have a bit put in your mouth and shoved this way and that. No, you use your brain as you read scripture and the words of God, and that's how he guides you. And you ask other people for help. There's a, a great yeah. line um, in one of John Stott's books where he talks about the Ethiopian eunuch who, after Pentecost, is uh, leaving Jerusalem, going back to uh, to Ethiopia, and he's reading from Isaiah on his chariot. And uh, Philip comes alongside him, the evangelist Philip, and says, oh, do, do you understand what you're reading there in Isaiah 53? Um, and the eunuch turns to him and says, well, of course I do. Don't you believe in the perspicuity of Scripture? No, that's not what he says at all. He yeah. says, well, let me help you. Let me teach you. Let me expound it for you in the light of what's happened in Christ. Um, so, you know, we do need interpret- interpretation. There's an established ministry of pastors and teachers in the church to interpret and help us and expound the scripture and apply the scripture. So it's not perspicuous and clear, just me sitting there with my Bible. I do also need to use my brain. I need to use the means established by God in this settled ministry of the church. I think that's right. And that extends back through history as well. We don't simply look to those teachers within the current church. There are many, many, many earlier teachers of the word to whom we can turn and, and will will enrich us in yes. that. We're not a standalone. It's not as if all truth resides in 21st century Western minds, <laughs> but it's something which is through. And I think there's another point on this as well. You're saying working at scripture, engaging your brain, which is which is true, because there's also that sense that scripture is inexhaustible. And that the more time we spend with it, the more uh, we gain from it. You mentioned Hilary of Poitiers earlier, so I take your early church father, Hilary of Poitiers, and I raise you, Ephraim the Syrian, and uh, just to oh. prove I've got credentials as well. But he 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 says something interesting, very um, about this idea is that there being far more in Scripture than mm. we may just simply get by one reading. We need to keep yes. returning. So he speaks, uh, I'll give you the quote because it's good. Who oh. is capable of comprehending the extent of what is to be discovered in a single utterance of yours? For we leave behind it far more than we take from it, like thirsty people drinking from a fountain. The facets of his words are more numerous than the faces of those who learn from them. 
God has depicted his words with many beauties, so that each of those who learn from them can examine that aspect of them which he likes. And God has hidden within his words all sorts of treasures, so Mm. that each of us can be enriched by them from whatever aspects they meditate on. For God's word is the tree of life which proffers blessed fruits to you on all sides. It's like the rock which was struck in the wilderness, which became spiritual drink for everyone on all sides. They ate the food of the Spirit and they drank the draught of the Spirit. Now, this is a 4th century Syrian. It's beautiful. Is that from Hymns of Paradise somewhere? It's... um, Maybe you haven't there, It's from the commentary in the Diatessaron 118. That's where okay. it's from. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay, so yeah. Ephraim the Syrian. But that's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. That God's word is so rich and deep and profound that uh, we'll never quite get to the bottom of it. There's a saying, isn't there? I, I don't have written it down in advance, but uh, um, uh, Gregory the Great in his commentary on Job says something like the, the scripture is... Um, so easy that a child can paddle in it like a, a little paddling yes. pool, but also so deep that an elephant could swim in it. Um, so there, there's always more for us to learn. And that's why his commentary on Job is so uh, wretchedly long, because he thinks there's a lot to find out. Yes. Um, Tertullian said, I adore the fullness of the word because there's just so much in it there and just one final thing before we finish our heresy half hour some people put scripture alongside tradition or reason and experience what about tradition we we need tradition don't we chris we need tradition as well to interpret scripture and alongside scripture as an alternative source of revelation of god do is that right i think we need tradition i think tradition teaches us things but i don't think tradition would be infallible um Mm. i found it interesting um Oh, many, many years ago, being at a conference on uh, scripture and tradition. Uh, this is about 17 years ago, so I shall be sketchy. But um, a distinction being drawn by um, a Greek Orthodox um, metropolitan uh, speaking on this, the distinction being drawn between his and the Eastern Orthodox understanding of scripture and tradition and perhaps what he was um, describing as a, as a Roman Catholic understanding. So that he would talk about do you have two twin sources of authority that stand independently of each other mm. and which equally independently carry weight so that tradition becomes of equal inspiration in the understanding, of equal inspiration to scripture and um, and becomes no. infallible? No. <laughs> and he would then describe that the Greek Orthodox, or the wider Eastern Orthodox understanding is that there is a single source of authority, uh, which is through scripture, and our tradition helps us to understand the scripture, but the scripture is still the standard. And if the scripture is found to be in, um, sorry, if the tradition is found to be in conflict with the scripture, then that tradition can be um, reflected in the understanding. If there is one source of truth, if, if God is truth and it's revealed to us through his scriptures, then everything should be able to be held up to its standard. And of course, the very word canon that we use, the canon of scripture, comes from that mm. measuring rod. We use the scriptures as the yes. rod by which we measure, measure whether anything else is right at all. So I wouldn't want to put tradition alongside as a separate source of authority, but mm. I would want to say that we mine the past because the traditions hand on a usually reliable interpretation. But they Otherwise, we, sit be, under we can, the yeah, we can become quite eccentric or idiosyncratic in our reading Indeed. of things, can't we? So I love the way that Paul says this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 36. Um, was it from you that the word of God came? You know, did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only ones it's reached? 
Um, and often you find cults um, or just idiosyncratic churches um, think that they are the only ones who've ever interpreted the Bible correctly. Um, and we need to check our interpretation, but we wouldn't put tradition, um, even orthodox traditions, alongside scripture as a as a source of revelation about God. No. The scripture reveals, um, but we have help to interpret it. Well, our heresy half hour is up, Chris. Um, we've had some time talking about scripture, the word of God, the unerring, uh, infallible instrument of God's rule over us, the scepter of his word, the scepter of his rule over us. It's a wonderful thing. Um, thanks for joining us on the Church Society podcast. Join Chris and I for another heresy half hour, looking at another doctrine, maybe Christology or the Trinity or something else in future. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm.